If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to the book of Esther. We are wrapping up today with chapters 9 and 10. It's been a two-month series through this amazing story. In interest of time, I am aware that we've added a lot of elements this morning, so I'm going to be brief here. In interest of time, my recap will be very short, and and this will even likely be quite a short message. But as of last week, if you can recall with me, Esther's cousin Mordecai has just been promoted to second in command over all the Persian Empire, which at the time of these events, which was roughly 450 BC, so 450 years before Christ, at the time, Persia is the largest, uh, most influential, most powerful empire the world has ever seen. And so Mordecai has just been promoted. Queen Esther is, is somewhere near her 10th year as queen, believe it or not. And with the help of her husband, King Ahasuerus, who's also known as King Xerxes, Esther and Mordecai have just witnessed the execution of the wicked Haman. We remember in him, right, the, the man who convinced King Ahasuerus to write a decree to order the annihilation of the entire population of Jews living in Persia. Now, Esther and Mordecai are Jews themselves, and so their sole mission over the last chapter or so has been to save their people. So we saw last week that after Haman is hanged on the gallows for his genocidal plan, Esther and Mordecai use their royal influence, influencing King Ahasuerus to issue another decree throughout all of Persia that on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is Adar. That's what they call their 12th month. It's the day that Haman had planned to kill the Jews. The new decree states that the Jews are encouraged to defend themselves against any and all of Haman's allies, man, woman, or child, who might attack them. So this is where we left off last week, and I invite you to follow along as I read to the very end. It's going to be a chunk Starting in chapter 9, verse 1. Are we ready? All right. Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house. And his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Paratha and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Erasai, and Eridai, and Vezatha. Woo! The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, 
but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king... Let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar. And they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year." And that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city. That these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews. Nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. Chapter 10. 
King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? What a powerful story, littered with grace, littered with the momentum and the movement of of an invisible God. Nowhere in this book do we hear your name mentioned, and yet you are coursing throughout every verse. Often that is true for our lives, Lord. Often we do not see you, we do not sense you, and yet you are weaving. Let us be certain of this. Use this word, Holy Spirit, to change our hearts and our minds. Lord, mold us into the shape of Jesus today. Using this inspired word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We have wrapped the book of Esther. Woohoo! It's okay if you throw a party. Uh, that's perfect. Just call it Purim. <laughs> as lengthy as this passage is, the outline of this passage is actually very simple. We see two things. What we see in this passage this morning is, number one, a defeated enemy. And number two, a dedicated celebration. Let's look at number one. <clears throat> so finally, we've just read it. The day, the 13th day of the 12th month arrives. It is the moment toward which the whole story has been building. The day that Haman and his allies had planned to massacre God's people. And without any attempt to build suspense whatsoever, the author cuts right to the chase in verse 2. Isn't it funny? It's just without any attempt to build suspense. As soon as Haman's allies arose to overtake the Jews, we're told that the opposite actually occurs. The Jews overtake their enemies. Chapter 9 is emphatic. No one could stand against the Jews. No one. According to verses 6 through 9, we've just read, 500 men are killed and destroyed in the city of Susa, including Haman's 10 sons. Who, if we're honest, you know, we can laugh about this. Their names sound like viruses or diseases, right? We see in verse 16 that outside the city in, in the rural provinces of Persia, 75,000 uh, of the Jews' enemies are killed. And look at verse 12. It's almost as if Ahasuerus is like entertained by all of this. He, he, you know, what, what? What more in all the other provinces could possibly be? Wow, 500 men dead. And do you see that? It's interesting. He even asked Esther if there's anything more that she would like to be done. Now, apparently, Esther knew of some bad guys that were still uh, existing in the city. They had, they had survived the, the, the first round. So she requests a second day for the city-dwelling Jews to defend themselves. And, and, and with, you know that, that results in another 300 men being killed and destroyed. She also requests that Haman's ten son, sons each be hanged on the gallows, which is rather rough. I mean, if you're just now with us, the gallows is a really, really tall, sharp stake that you either put 
onto through your head or you were laid on it with your body and you just slunk all the way down. But, but Persian custom actually does verify that, that this was to serve an example of any who would further conspire against the crown. Um, and, and so, it, you know, we read that and, and, and maybe some of us struggle with, Esther, that sounds a little grim. This was, this was custom in Persia to do this, to, to thwart any future conspirators. Now, it's interesting, if you look at verses 2, 3, and 4, that the authors, look at this, the, the authors given reason as to why the Jews prevail over their enemies is because of their enemies' fear of Mordecai. Do you see that? It's true, okay? So Mordecai had, in a short time, risen to a place of great power and influence. Um, Chapter 10 actually awkwardly emphasizes this, right? That Mordecai's influence essentially leads to the empire's prosperity. It's also a bit humorous, if I can give you a commercial. In all likelihood, Mordecai was the one to write this story out. And so it's really funny that that you know Mordecai is so emphatic that it's his leadership that leads to the empire right do we do we see that it's like uh, Moses you know Moses we we think he compiled the the Pentateuch and in numbers 15 and Moses was the most humble man to walk the planet <laughs> authored by Moses <laughs> isn't that funny like we can laugh at these things a little bit right it's still it's God's word he he inspired it it's infallible it's perfect all that but we can we can laugh a little bit so it's true that Mordecai had become very powerful. He, he was an intimidating force. Now look, if the book of Esther were a standalone book, if Esther were detached from the rest of the Bible, we might be tempted to just simply believe what the text says and give Mordecai all of the credit for the Jews' victory. Because there's no mention of God in this, right? But we know because we know the rest of the Bible and we have the rest of the Bible with which to interpret this book of Esther, we know that a much greater force was at work behind the scenes, behind Mordecai, ensuring the defeat of the enemy. Who are we talking about? God himself. God himself, the invisible main character of this story, who in every verse, every verse is weaving and working and guaranteeing the defeat of the enemy. He's guaranteeing the survival of the Jews. Why? Because a future Messiah is coming through the Jews. God's not going to let these people perish. Make no bones about it. No bones about it. Credit needs to be given where credit is due. It is the all-powerful creator God through the Jews who defeats the enemy in chapter 9 of Esther. I once heard a uh, I once heard the wife of a successful pastor as she was asked for a reason as to why their church had grown so much so fast. Her answer when she was asked this was because of her husband's good communication skills. Uh, it's because it's because my husband is a good communicator. That's why this church has grown so large so quickly. Do we hear that? This kind of nearsightedness is all 
around us. It plagues my own heart. It plagues every sphere of our lives. The moment a church starts growing, we want to take credit for it. The moment our business starts earning, do we not want to take credit for it? The moment our kids start following Jesus, Lord, I pray it. Help me not to take credit for that. The moment a hurdle is jumped or the moment an obstacle is overcome, the moment of breakthrough, if we're honest, is it not our temptation to bask in the glory of it as if it were all due to us? We need to be a people who look at Esther chapter 9 and we take a cue from this. We need to be a people who give credit where credit is due. Listen, if there is anything good going on in your life, if there is any hint of victory, if there is any trace of progress that you have made in the Lord or made at work or at school, if there is any glimpse of provision, give the honor to Jesus. Give him the praise and the glory and the thanks to God, the father of lights from whom every good and perfect gift is given. We don't get to take credit for any of this. In verses 10, 15, and 16, I know I'm jumping around all over. This is kind of a weird chapter. In verses 10, 15, and 16, three different times, did you hear it in the reading? We're told that the Jews abstain. They abstain from plundering their enemies' possessions. Did that poke out to anybody when we were reading? We're, we're, we're learning how to observe and listen to the text, right? So even though Mordecai had given expressed permission in his edict, Kill everybody who opposes you and plunder their goods. Though Mordecai had done this, though he had given him permission, none of the Jews plunder. Why? This tells us something. It tells us that not only does the victory of this battle belong to the Lord, not only does the ends, but also the means. Mordecai and Ahasuerus are not calling the shots. It is not their decree that enables the Jews to, to, to fall or to rise. It is, remember, God. God is calling the shots here. This battle that we've just read about was much more than a scuffle in the mid-4th century, in mid-4th century Persia. We looked at this earlier in this series. This battle is a showdown between two ancient rivals. The offspring of the woman... And the offspring of the serpent, the offspring of the Israelites, the offspring of the Amalekites, Esther and Mordecai, Haman and his allies. Esther 9 is not the first time these two rivals have met at a previous battle centuries before in 1 Samuel 15. God also forbade the Israelites to plunder their enemies. And here he forbids it again. This is telling. Because holy war, sanctioned by God, is never about God's people getting rich off their enemies. It is about God serving justice to the wicked and preserving those who by sheer grace are called to be his own. 
This is what we see in Esther chapter 9. This is why, verse 2, no one could stand against them. They are God's people because they belong to the supreme power of the universe because his name, God's name, and God's reputation is attached to their ultimate well-being. He will not let the Jews falter. And it's not because they've been so dedicated to him. We've seen that. It's not been because they've been so loyal or faithful. It's because God is loyal and faithful. And the same praise Jesus is true for you and I who have placed our hope in the Son of God. This same thing, no one could stand against them. You overlay that right onto yourself. If you have come to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, you have entered into an impenetrable fortress that cannot be seized by even our greatest enemy. Listen to why. This is why the psalmists are so confident. Listen to David. Though an army encamp against me, Psalm 27, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident because my head will be lifted up above my enemies. Whom shall I fear? So now I will offer in God's tent sacrifices with shouts of joy and I will sing and make melody to the Lord. I wish I had half of this boldness. And the reason why is because I often get enemies mixed up in my head. I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. Verse 2, no one could stand against them, does not mean that human beings will rise up against you and even cause harm. No one could stand against them does not mean that faithful believers will not be struck with cancer. We have to see that the even better message behind that verse is that our God in Christ Jesus coming to earth, becoming our sin, dying on a cross to atone for us, to reconcile us back to the Father, our God has already defeated the much greater enemy than cancer or your neighbor. If we don't understand this, we will create a Frankenstein of dangerous theology that says, no weapon formed against me shall remain. And then we walk onto the mission field, all arrogant, and people get killed. Because the promise in this passage that I hope we can take more comfort than anything else is this. Church, even if today goes completely belly up for you, you may face the worst day of your life today, but that is as bad as it will ever get for you if you're in Jesus. It is only glory from here. This ought to empower us Not because we're crying out for the mountain to be moved. We have faith like a mustard seed and it's not being moved. Sometimes Jesus' spirit propels us to climb over the hardship, to walk through it, to be formed by it. Knowing this, that the greatest enemy, man, he's done. Jesus didn't, he wasn't kidding when he said it is finished. Because 
our God, because my Christ has already defeated my greatest enemy, I am able to actually walk in the boldness, and so are you, of Psalm 27 that I just read. Life may get hard. In fact, life, you guys, will. And enemies will come. And sickness will happen. But my goodness, this is the worst of it for us. It's, it's feasting and banquet from here. God, give us the assurance of this. The story doesn't end with a defeated enemy. The story ends with a dedicated celebration. A new tradition. It, it's, this is meant to preserve the story. Okay, look. This is the reason why the book of Esther was originally compiled for ancient Jews. It was to remind them and their generations of the reversal of fortunes between Mordecai and Haman, between the Israelites and the Amalekites. We see in verses 18 and 19 that the rural, rural Jew, the rural Jews defeat their enemies on the 13th day of the month and then they celebrate on the 14th. And then we see the urban Jews, they defeat their enemies on the 13th and 14th, and then they celebrate on the 15th. Now, each of these people, the the whole nation of Israel, they're, they're given to feasting and gladness and generosity, just like we would expect from a people who've just been spared from destruction. Wouldn't you party? I would. The celebration is a hit. And if you look at your Bibles, just because we want to be biblically literate people, we want to understand what's going on, verses 20 through 32, that whole section is simply telling us how Mordecai and Esther are declaring the 14th and 15th of Adar, a national holiday called Purim. Now remember, a Pur is a lot. It's a die, right? Like the game of dice. That's what a Pur is. And this is exactly what Haman used to determine which day he was going to destroy the Jews. So naming the holiday Purim, isn't that, it's awesome. It's a tongue-in-cheek nod to Haman's failed plan. Uh, The Jews are mocking him by calling it that. And we're told in verses 27 through 28 that all of the Jews obligated themselves and their offspring To keep the tradition of these days without fail throughout every generation, every clan, every province and city. That these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews. Now here's what I want to say about this as I wrap. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the entire Old Testament, celebrations are very important. Just go to Leviticus 23. There's a list of all of the feasts and the parties that the Jews were expected to keep according to the law given to Moses. And here's why. Celebrations have a unique ability to help us commemorate and cultivate. I want to look at those two words quickly. To commemorate past achievements and to cultivate future attitudes. So take the Passover, for instance. The Passover is a yearly Jewish tradition aimed at remembering, at commemorating God's miraculous rescue of the Jews from Pharaoh. The Passover celebration is also aimed at cultivating a continued trust in God's saving power. Celebrations are given to us for a reason. They are powerful. I remember we're growing up. Uh, when, when it was, I always, I hated report card week, but report cards would come home in the backpack. I don't know how they do it now, but we actually had paper report cards. We'd show it to my mom and dad. And, and then as a celebration to kind of, it was mainly 
grace toward me uh, in my failure, but we would go to Dairy Queen. And so the taste of a Butterfinger blizzard is the taste of commemorating, of, of remembering the hard work of a report card and, and cultivating future hard work, right? It sounds little, but like it was a really big deal, okay? So, so the Butterfinger blizzard, even still now, it just makes me want to like go after life. So let's, uh, we'll go to DQ together and we'll just go get, you know, we'll chase our dreams, right? So, so I remember that. It, it would, this, this report card celebration would commemorate mine and my, my siblings' hard work and it would also cultivate continued effort. Celebrations are powerful. And the point that I want to draw to this, it might seem tangential here, but in our homes, listen, in our homes, parents, we ought to make a Big stinking deal when our kids demonstrate acts of selflessness. When our kids demonstrate evidence of grace and obedience and honesty and generosity. Look, I don't know about you, my parenting style, I tend to be overly, um, I tend to overcorrect and under celebrate. But man, there is power in celebration. There is a commemorating the act and it's cultivating future. Like, do more of that. Do, do more of that. Tell the truth, even though it's tough. Share with your friend, even though it's tough. When we see something in our spouse, that man, I just see growth. I see evidence of grace, babe, and I love you. And I want to tell you, and you're, you're, you're doing great. Praise the Lord. I don't do that enough. And if we would, I, I think our homes, I think our homes would, would there would be a, there'd be a shift just given by the Spirit. The same goes for our relationships at school and work and in the body of Christ. So here's the thing. If I see something that is praiseworthy in your life, I ought to tell you. I ought to tell you. Now, I tend to be, maybe you're like me, I tend to be overly critical and under-celebratory. But what if in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, what if we became a people committed even just once a day to sending a celebratory text or email, or handwritten note to someone in our lives commemorating godliness that we see, cultivating godliness. In our community groups, what if we offered more praise reports, right? Like, here's an example. I don't even know if they're in the room. Yes, uh, Noel. I, you know, I, I need to say this in, in my community group, and I'll say it now. I've seen major growth, like major growth in Chad and Noel Miller. Major, like the Lord is doing a work there that only the Lord could do. I need to say those things to you and in our group. I, last week, uh, we had guests that were here, and uh, we basically stayed until dinner time in the cafe, which was exceedingly long. Craig Fee, Mike Davidson, they stayed. They let us just hang out in the cafe, and with servants' hearts, they stayed and then mopped after. We need, I need to celebrate these things, and so do you, because do we not want to cultivate this Christ-likeness among us, in our homes, in our churches? Now, my heart... Is not to, you know, boast in Craig himself and, and then risk him being puffed up or conceited. The boast here, the heart is to boast in what God has done and is doing through his people. And this is what Purim ought to have been. And I say ought to have been 
And I'm not trying to be overly harsh toward the Jews here, but there is yet again no mention of God in all of their celebrations. Did we catch that? There is plenty of generosity. There's plenty of goodwill that we can hope was God-centered, but it's not explicitly stated. Now, if you were to go and if you were to do a Google search of Purim, it still is a festival. It still is a celebration enjoyed by all of the Judeo world. If you were to Google search it, you'd see that it hasn't so much fallen into disuse, such as written in verse 28, but it certainly seems to have fallen into misuse. And it's not just a recent thing. One of the common practices in the Jewish Talmud is that when a rabbi reads from the scroll of Esther during Purim, it's treated as a drinking game. That every time Mordecai is mentioned, we take a shot. Every time Haman's mentioned, we take a shot. And the goal expressed in the Talmud is at the end of the story, we don't even know who we're rooting for anymore. Haman or Mordecai. You can read that for yourself. Talk about not falling into disuse, the, the festival of Purim, the feast still exists, but I mean, are we not majorly flirting with misuse at that point? Now, before we point our fingers and we cry foul, just look at what has come of Christmas. Look at what has come for many of us during Easter. Many of us would not think of missing Christmas. We, we definitely won't let it fall into disuse. But sweet mercy, has it not fallen for many of us into misuse? With Easter fast approaching, we have a tremendous opportunity to recenter ourselves in the word of God, by the spirit of God, to focus on an even better celebration than Purim. At best... Purim celebrates God's defeat of an earthly enemy and the temporal preservation of his people. But you guys, Easter celebrates God's defeat of our greatest enemy and the eternal preservation of his people. Purim doesn't hold a candle to Easter Sunday. So let me encourage you, as the season approaches, may we be intentional May we be intentional that one of the things that I love to do is watch the passion of the Christ. Yeah, there's some theological stuff in there. I get it. But the heart of that film, the basis of that film, it, I, I mean, it wrecks me in the most wonderful of ways. Maybe you adopt a, adopt a tradition to begin, and maybe you already do, begin getting a pulse for the upcoming Easter season of what has actually been given to us in God becoming man to take sins of those who were not seeking him, who did not invite him here, who did not even want him to take our sins because we love our sins. And yet he did it despite us being nailed to the cross that we deserved, rising again or raising again, however you say that, calling us, to a renewed relationship with God the Father. What we have seen in the book of Esther is a better king in Jesus, 
a better mediator in Jesus, a better rescue in Jesus, a better obedience in Jesus, a better reversal in Jesus. We've seen a better victory because the the enemy was greater that was defeated by Jesus. And of course, this all culminates in what will be a better celebration at the table with Jesus when he returns for those who are longing for his return. This is the book of Esther. Would you pray with me? One of the things that I'm just so shocked about, Lord, is just how intertwined your word is. The types and the shadows and the images of redemption that we see throughout the Old Testament centuries before Jesus even came to the planet, it's all there. The Bible is just one cohesive, inspired story that leads us to the Son of God who came and became sin so that we sinners might become the very righteousness of God. We're humbled by it, Lord. Um, Thank you. Thank you for what we have seen in this passage, Lord. Lead us to be a people who celebrate, who commemorate your faithfulness in our lives and who cultivate a renewed trust that you are doing a work in us and around us and through us. And let us be excited about that. In Jesus' name, amen.